Hey folks, I'm Will Jarvis. Along with my dad, Dr. David Jarvis, I host the podcast Narratives. Narratives is a project exploring the ways in which the world is better than it has been, the ways it is worse, and the past toward making a better, more definite future. I hope you enjoy it. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can get on our mailing list, find show notes, transcripts, as well as videos at narrativespodcast.com. Thanks. Well, Tommy, how are you doing today? Doing well, thanks. How are you? Doing great. Uh, Well, Tommy, I wanted to just jump straight into it. You know, I found your work, actually. I'm a big fan of the great books. Um... And I saw, you know, you had started this project where you're reading through all the great books yourself, kind of like in an autodidact fashion. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how did you get started on this journey? I, I think it's such a cool project. And um, yeah, what initially attracted you and made you think this was a, a good idea? Yeah, so, so I guess there's two things. The kind of immediate cause was that there was a global pandemic. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Uh, and there's an extent to which, you know, I was a great indoorsman and all my hobbies were actually very, you know, quarantine friendly in the sense of that they didn't require a lot. Can, um, can you say that again? The great indoorsman? I love that. Yeah, yeah. I well, love that just, term. Uh, I think it's originally my girlfriend's where she like, she we started dating and she was like, wow, you are so self-contained. Um, That's which good. I, th- I think is a compliment, but but. You know, who's, who's Great to for say? pandemics. Great for pandemics. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, pandemic-friendly hobbies. Um, yeah, and, and, and so, you know, other people were doing their sourdough starters or, you know, their Instagram <laughs> ads or whatever. And I was like, well, I should have some project. You know, I should be doing something, you know, have something to show for myself. Um, you know, that there, there was the early part of the pandemic in kind of March or April where people were like, oh, yeah, Isaac Newton, you know, wrote this thing in the middle of the, you know, Black Plague of London or something. And it's like, oh, well, if he's going to do something, may as well, uh, you know, have something to show for myself, right. especially because, you know, I, I was super lucky in the sense of, um, you know, Lambda School, the company I work for is this online education program. And so we just went remote and, you know, I stayed working. And so there's an extent to which uh, a lot or kind of most people had a much more, um disruptive pandemic experience than I did. Um, but so I was kind of looking around, you know, thinking what sort of projects I wanted to do. And I graduated from the journalism school at NYU, um, you know, a couple of years ago. And journalism was a super vocational major, a very kind of gotcha. I mean, naturally kind of a, a very, um, you know, hands-on major in the sense that, you know, we had a couple of kind of theory classes, but it was mostly, you know, how to be a journalist. Um, and, you know, there's an extent to which I kind of, everything I know, to, to the extent that I know anything about journalism today, um, and to the extent that I can write uh, anything, that comes from being editor at the student newspaper uh, as much as it did whatever journalism classes I right. took. Um, and so super kind of hands-on, super vocationally based majors. And I kind of realized that I didn't have the kind of traditional college experience that I that I saw in um you know, movies and things and read about in, you know, well, I don't know if Donna Tartt is a traditional college experience. It's like a murder mystery, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, um, uh, you know, and NYU of course is, is, you know, in and of the city. And so it's a very right. kind of, um, you know, city-based college or whatever, but all this to say that I was like, oh, I never actually did the going deep on old things um, that, that kind of so many college students did. Uh, you know, to the extent that I was staying up late arguing um, with with people in my dorm room, it was over kind of journalism things or over 
you know, pop politics or stuff that was happening at the time more than it was like, what did Cicero say about, you know, the role of the polity? Um, and so I had read uh, probably a couple of years ago at this stage, I had read um, a book called Investing the Last Liberal Art um, by oh, a guy called Robert, Robert Hagstrom. And he basically makes the he, he makes the claim that you know you should know a lot about or, or a little about a, a lot of things um and he specifically cites charlie munger and this kind of mental model uh discussion and being able to pull from the best of every industry but but I, to make a long story short he referenced the great books program at saint john's college um which is a university in uh annapolis that doesn't you know today's college students are sort of um kind of handed a menu of what they want to study and, you know, mixing and matching classes from all different areas. Uh, St. John's has none of that in the sense that over in the St. John's, you read, I think it's 150 books uh, over the four years. Everyone reads the same books in the same order. And so if you are a freshman talking to a, a junior, they read the same books you are two years ago. And so there's, you know, from people who've told me about it, there's this remarkable, remarkable cohesion on campus where everyone has done the same things. Um, and they, there are no kind of classes or lectures to speak of um, in the sense that they literally spend their entire time uh, reading these books. And so, you know, in pandemic, uh, I basically decided, I was like, okay, well, you know, the ship has sailed on me being a, a St. John's undergrad, but, uh, you know, there's no reason I can't do this solo. Um, and so I basically uh, started the project and, and did what I, I sort of do sometimes, which is like to keep me... Not, not so much to keep me honest, but to keep me engaged or, or to like, yeah. as a kind of pre-commit, as it were. I basically right. just kind of t- tweeted that I was doing this or wrote a blog post that I was doing it. And the there was far more kind of interest than I was expecting in the sense that it, it turns out a lot of people uh, kind of A, are interested in reading these old books, but B, um, are, are interested in this kind of discussion as to why someone would do it or um, kind of what benefit there is. Uh, And I guess this kind of gets back to this whole, you know, discussion around colleges these days, uh, which is kind of very much in vogue. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great, that's a great point, right? You know, and I'm curious, have you, you know, how far have you gotten so far in the project? And um, have you gotten any big takeaways? Like, uh, I, I guess, like, there's, there's the enjoyment part of it. There's the utility part of it. There's the, you know, there's a lot of factors at play. There's learning about from things from the past, you know, what has been the most valuable thing so far? It's probably an extent to the extent to which, uh, there are no great books. There's only one big conversation, um, in, in, in the sense that, everything is kind of responding to something else. And I'm like fairly early in the project, maybe we should doing this podcast in like four years time or something, right. but um, we'll come back. exactly. There's an extent to which, you know, one, the, the, these people and these ideas are, uh, are responding to one another um, and, and kind of sometimes explicitly, sometimes implicitly. So, so to give an example right now, uh, I'm reading Dante's Inferno and uh, Inferno is essentially Dante walking through hell and you know the, the kind of seven circles of hell or whatever um we we get that from dante that's a kind of a reference to dante <laughs> um and he he as his guide has virgil the the author of the aeneid um this kind of very famous uh i guess roman classic that is the t- talks about the founding of rome 
um, and became kind of central to, um, well, Mussolini in like the 19... Right. 20s and 30s kind of held it up as an example of like this is the you know great roman empire or whatever um and so there's an extent to which everyone's kind of talking to each other and that dante references um virgil and references a ton of other writers but but kind of more than that there's almost a sense of comfort where the things that they're arguing about um are the same things that we're arguing about today and I think literature has, and especially kind of good literature, great literature has this quality about it that it feels kind of um, immediately familiar where, uh, you know, if you look at today where, you know, this kind of bowling alone phenomenon of, uh, okay, kind of religiosity is declining, uh, membership of random social things like unions or bowling clubs, I think it was his example, uh, are declining. Uh, you know, what does it mean to be part of a community? What does it mean to live a good life? Um, this is literally what Dante is feeling when he kind of stumbles on the entrance to hell, where he's like, I was in a oh, dark that's very wood. Interesting. Yeah, he's like, I was in a dark wood and my life was kind of all over the place. And I don't, you know, I was feeling lost. And, you know, some things happen and then I entered hell and, you know, I'm only halfway through the inferno. So I, I don't have the, the, the key takeaways. Um, but but essentially, this is him trying to work out, you know, what, how do I live a good life? What, you know, what, because he's um, explicitly religious, he's kind of like, what does God want? Um, you know, what, what does it mean to live in accordance to, to good beliefs and everything? Um, but, but kind of zooming out or to, to give a slightly more contemporary example, one of the reasons I loved Hamilton, I don't know if you saw it, um, yeah, but, but the, yeah, the musical, but, but think of the, the three conflicts in Hamilton, which is, you know, immigrants, good or bad, question mark, um, state versus federal rights, like the entire second yeah. act is, is Jefferson v. Hamilton, um, and three, also in the second act, like, you know, how much should we be uh, in Britain or France's affairs? I mean, think about it, it's like immigration, question mark, uh, states' rights, question mark, and, you know, should we be the world's policeman, question mark. Like, all three of those are like early 2000s, you know, uh, debates that, you know, Republicans right. and, and Democrats were having and, and kind of very much still to, to today. And I remember kind of walking out of Hamilton and being like, wow, nothing ever changes. And Is that's there so, anything new, right? Yeah, that's like, that's so comforting. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like, uh, you know, our ancestors has fa- have faced very similar challenges. And I, I, I do think that's one of the big benefits of reading the great books, right, is, is, is seeing people that have encountered problems that, you know, we encounter today and like seeing how they dealt with them, how they were successful, how they were not successful. Uh, do you think there's an element where they're, you know, the great books are valuable for some kind of like Lindy effect where they've been around for a long time. Um, they survived. And so they've, they've made it through some filtering process, whereas new works, you know, it, it's tougher to tell, right? Yeah. I think it's probably safe that you shouldn't read any books in the last 10 years. Um, because there has to be some, and you know, that there's different factors here in the sense that, you know, there's like way more books published right. um, that they kind of ever before. Um, but, but it's probably safe to say that books have to go through uh, a, a certain amount of uh, exposure to the real world. Um, and I mean, exposure to the field in the sense that if you're, especially, I guess, a nonfiction, um, you're, you know, you're putting something forward, you're adding something to, to the canon, you know, Robert Hagstrom wrote this book on investing and, you know, presumably made some claims about investing and people who know much more about investing than I do probably had opinions on those. And it's like, okay, well, you know, let's, let's let it, let's, let, let's let society digest this book a little bit 
um, and, and you know, see if it comes uh, to the bottom or to, to the top. Um, and so I guess to, to the extent that, you know, life is short and there are many, many books um, and you presumably want to be reading the best things that you can, right. uh, you know, I guess to, to be safer than sorry, you probably want to avoid new things. And to, to your point, there is nothing less new than, you know, I, I think the Iliad and the Odyssey are kind of two of the oldest, <laughs> certainly in the Western civilization, kind of the oldest stories we have, you know, the Bible, question mark. Right, right. They're, they're quite old, right? Like, uh, yeah, it, it's hard to get older than those two. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, so the great books, they, they've been declining, like, you know, and there's, there's a lot of debates now. And I think you've written about some of this, about, you know, how much should we be reading these books? And I think of some of that sentiment comes from the fact, you know, okay, the West, you know, whatever the West is, you know, has done a lot of good things. It's done a lot of bad things. And, you know, this is all mixed up within that canon, right? Um, what do you think about that? And ha have you thought about that issue much? Yeah, I, I guess, well, there's, there's two things, or two kind of separate but related arguments that I see happening. One is which like, kind of, oh, we should study something useful. Um, right. Not, you know, the, the kind of humanities in trouble problem, which is like, you know, in, in one in one part. And then the second part is this kind of dead, excuse me, dead white man problem where kind of so much of the canon, so much of what we're reading um, all kind of look alike, um, you know what I yeah. mean? And uh, there, there's, you know, to, to the second problem, and I think I think it is a problem in, in the sense that I think if we can make the, 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 I guess to take a step back, the canon isn't set in stone in the sense of when we talk about the great books, this right. is kind of a, a roughly agreed upon, um, you know, list of important things. Um, and so, you know, what is important, what is kind of worth reading, um, you know, there, there are people who have put forward lists or, or kind of suggestions, but I, I don't think that kind of precludes putting other things on that list. And I, and I think, and, and even if you kind of look at my list that, I, that I've published online, it includes a lot of what we might call kind of the Eastern classics um, in, in the sense of there's no, I, I certainly see no reason to study Western literature at the expense of everything else. Um, right. But, you know, there's kind of two questions there, which is like, is some Western literature, is some of what we could kind of traditionally call the great books worth studying? And I think the answer is yes. Um, you know, to the conclusion of other things, like, no, not necessarily. Um, but the, the, the second thing I'd say to the kind of, to the, you know, dead white man problem is, uh, you know, for better or for worse, these are, uh, the thinkers who influenced what we might call the great people or the, the great strongmen of history or whatever the phrase is. In the sense, right. you know, Thomas Jefferson, classically educated, Winston Churchill, classically educated. And, you know, you can dispute both of those people and people do vociferously, um, you know, the, the things that the two people I just mentioned have done or right. did. Um, but, you know, there's an extent to which uh, you kind of want to know what they knew or, or kind of study what they studied. Um, and I think there's a lot of value in that. Incidentally, Winston Churchill, just completely off topic. Um, I, I was reading, there's a new biography of him, but I was reading, he was born in like kind of the 1880s and died in 1965, which means he was born literally at the height of the British Empire. And- uh, Watch the whole thing come down. Watch the whole thing go down. And, and oh you know, it's God. kind of sad that his, his funeral in 65 was like the death knell of the British Empire. Cause it's like, well, who's, who's left after that? Right. Um, and, and I find that kind of, 
life has a way of being weirdly poetic sometimes. It does. That 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 is quite that's quite interesting. Um, so on on your first point, you talked about the utility of kind of reading the great books. There's an old uh, Scott Alexander post um, about, and it's about Harvard admissions rates over mm-hmm. time. And so Harvard, you know, back in the 1800s and even the early, let's see, 1900s as well, and up until recently, fairly recently, like post-World War II, it was not very competitive at all. It's like you, mm-hmm. you would take an interest exam and you could pretty much come. Like if you could pay the fee, it was very minimal, you could come. And there, I don't, I get the feeling there was not a big wage premium to having a college degree. And over time, that wage premium, I think, has increased. Do you think that plays to, to part of why, you know, it's become something where everyone needs a college degree to succeed and you're, you're going for utility instead of like, well, I'm just really interested in these things and there aren't that many people that are interested, so I'm just going to go study it. Uh, do you think that feeds into why the great books have, and, and humanities as a whole have gotten kind of, um, you know, there's declining interest. Yeah, uh, and the kind of decline of the humanities kind of, I think has a lot of people nervous, um, myself included, in that I don't know what the optimal number of classics department it, departments <laughs> is, but in a sort of kind of Chesterton's fence sort of sense, I don't love that we're closing them down. Um, and the big discussion that's happening right now that I've been following is so Howard University, which is this um, uh, historically black college, um, uh, probably announced the that HBCU and um, my uh, my father-in-law's dad went to Howard. Anyway, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, a, a rightly famous university uh, is closing their their classics department ostensibly because of low enrollment. Um, and it's like, okay, what well, what happens when the largest and arguably kind of most prestigious uh, HBCU, you know, closes down their classics department? There's kind of all these stories about Douglas. Um, Frederick Douglass, um, you know, we're kind of um, studying these classic thinkers and, and it becoming kind of a formative okay. experience for him. Yeah. And so, I mean, there, there's, well, we're talking about kind of 17 different problems, one of which, as you say, right. is, is kind of <laughs> great inflation and the, you know, the a bachelor's degree being almost kind of table stakes for a lot of jobs. And I think the, the benefit of the great books and the fact that there's no uh, kind of price of admission or whatever, we can get these for kind of a couple of cents, right. uh, is that it's the first step to seeing education as something that happens kind of out, bounds of, out of the bounds of a university. Um, in the sense of, we, we seem to have decided that learning is something you do for the first 22 years of your life. Um, and then you're and kind then of you're off on your own. Yeah. And, and this is fundamentally not true, both because as the great book show, you can kind of just do it on your own or do it in small groups or whatever. But also um, in the sense that I think something like 75% of people uh, are not working in the industry that they went to college for. I think it's like 27% are, um, and so, right. you know, myself, myself included. Um, and so it's an extent to which, you know, college is important and you can be a very enjoyable formative experience. Um, but, you know, the, the, the great books, the, the, the way that I've started thinking about it is the great books is this sort of like, large hadron collider but for ideas in the sense of you're kind of picking and choosing from a ton of different areas um and kind of mashing stuff together where kind of you literally are studying kind of geography theology physics uh literature um you know science history everything everything. biology everything yeah um and so if we can kind of extricate learning from the university system and, if, and like at my day job at lambda this is what we're doing we're saying you, you can change your career 
um, without having to go to a two or a four year institution. Right. Um, and w- which is not to say I think colleges are going to go away or should go away. Um, you know, I'm asked this in context of Lambda School where it's like, well, should I go to college or go to Lambda School? I'm like, well, they're, they're two very different projects um, right. and, and suitable for kind of two very different people. Uh, or to diff- very different kind of types of people. I'm just in favor of more choice uh, in the sense of being able to choose A or over B. Um, and, and so in a similar vein, um, I, I think if we can kind of bring learning uh, out of traditional classroom environments, I think that would be a really good thing. But that of course lends the question where it's like, how do you do academia outside of academia? In the sense of, yeah, right. you can read these great books, but people have kind of rightly said when I tell them about the project or on Twitter or something, they're like, yeah, but like, isn't the whole benefit of St. John's that they get together in these small discussion groups? Um, you know, to, what is the benefit of reading them on your own, which I think is, is super valuable or like a very good question. And so then I think the question becomes, okay, if we kind of move learning outside of the university system, it's like, okay, well, let, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like, how do we take the best parts? Right. I, I really like that. And I do wonder how much of the, you know, credentialism, you know, requiring it has made knowledge and learning, you know, everyone, like, because it's so focused on, you know, you know, get the degree to get your money, it's obfuscated the fact that, you know, learning is a, a good in itself, right? Like, in general, it's a good thing to be learned and, and uh, you know, consume these ideas and see what other people have thought before you. Yeah, no, and, and then there's a whole thing of like, well, the robots are going to, you know, work and sleep um, to the extent that robots need to sleep. But like, what, 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 in what ways are we different? And uh, Zena Hitz, who's a, a tutor at St. John's, wrote a really good book about this. I think it came out last year um, called Lost in Thought. Um, and the subtitle is The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life. Basically saying that, that you know, as a byproduct, your career may benefit from learning things um but you know fundamentally the you know fundamentally taking the time to learn things uh creates this inner space and in that inner space is where reflection happens is where growth happens um and so just kind of creating that space and kind of inhabiting it every time every now and and every now and again uh has benefits outside of you you know getting kind of like oh you're gonna have like a performance review and a raise after this right right and, and it also seems like even just the, the ability to see that you know like kind of like you, you mentioned this earlier it's like uh most of the problems you encounter in your life so you know someone one of these authors has, has encountered this and like written a lot on it and i guarantee you you know he or she is much smarter than you are and has put a lot of time into and, and it survived this process right and so there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from from doing this yeah and and i think that there are some practical benefits um and i I don't want to you know claim that it is just kind of navel gazing one of the ones that i keep coming back to is you just get so much experience or sorry so much exposure to people articulating their ideas um both Mm. in in the nonfiction sense in the sense of like these people are laying out their their arguments um but also you know you get it's the the one that i keep coming back to is leadership um, and the, Interesting. The, the entire, um, the entire great conversation or whatever is essentially a study in leadership in the sense of the, the Iliad starts off with just literally uh, kind of fundamentally a dude and his manager <laughs> fighting it out over credit and like, 
you know, literally a performance review. Right. Um, and, and so you get these kind of studies in leadership. I mean, the Bible is another great example where it's like, all right, you're going to take Abraham and he's going to found a religion and he's going to talk to people. And then, you know, there's going to be a covenant with God and we'll see where it goes from there. Um, original startup. <laughs> exactly. Uh, is that, well, is that, is it, yeah, I was about to say, is that Judaism or Christianity? That's a great question. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I, and so, you know, to the extent that leadership is predicated on your ability to articulate your your position, um, you know, I think I think it's really important to uh, study people both in the kind of the, the, the nonfiction sense, like I said, um, but also in in fiction. Um, and then just kind of beyond that, you, you know, I, I was asked recently, you know, kind of, OK, I don't have, you know, the, the time that you have or the patience that you have to like go read 125 of them. But like, what should I read? Um, that, uh, that, that is, you know, kind of really kind of weighty. Um, and I kind of came, I mean, again, 10 books in and so uh, kind of premature question, but I, but I think Don Quixote might be the single best novel ever written. Um, oh, wow. And it, it, it was the first. So, I mean, um, <laughs> there's some benefit there. Yeah, exactly. Talking about the longevity question. That's like, yeah. it's just the test of time, but, but it's, a, it's an amazing novel where kind of the premise is, um, and it's this wonderful quote. I don't, I actually do have a copy to hand. I wonder how quickly I can find it. But there's a quote in kind of the first chapter where it's like, he read so many books that his brain rotted away, which <laughs> occupational hazard. Um, yes. But but so because his brain has rotted away, he believes he's a knight, uh, this like chivalrous knight of all, of all the uh, stories that he's read. And he basically goes off on adventures and people sort of play into it or, you know, circumstances being what they are. Um, and throughout the entire novel you're never sure whether Don Quixote is crazy or everyone else is um and so and so you can sort of read it as this comic story this kind of funny story where things happen um and it is kind of genuinely funny um or it's this like really touching thing where you know Don Quixote is literally the last person on earth who believes in chivalry who believes in people being good and who believes in you know this literally this covenant between you know people um and, and setting up the society um and so it, it's a book with you know 17 layers all the way down i love that well and you brought up a, a very enjoyable book you know don quixote how much do you think it, it, someone like in a doing a project like you're doing and reading the great books how much should they push so you know taleb has this line to and he, you know, he's quite the nut, but he's like, uh, you know, if you're not enjoying it, don't read it. Like, you know, yep. switch to something else, you know, but you know, it, it clearly seems to me there's some cases where it's like worth struggling with, with some things. Like I really enjoyed Mo Moby Dick and it was a hard book to get through. And I, that was an incredibly formative book for my life, but it was difficult to get through. Like, I, I'm not going to lie. Uh, yeah. You know, how much should you struggle with a given work before you toss it or should it, you know, should you struggle? Well, well the, the thing in, you might only know this if you're like me and going way too deep on this um, <laughs> in the sense of, well, reading the great books, I've realized that there is this entire debate going on, um, but both in terms of kind of the people who, who think about these things for a living and in terms of like literature professors and English professors, right. um, but also, um, you know, kind of to, to Zena Hetz's point, um, there are just so many people who, you know, they're firefighters, they're people in office jobs, they're whatever. And, you know, their day jobs might be somewhat, you know, sometimes be mundane or sometimes be you know not the most fulfilling things in the world um and who are going out and reading these and you know literally kind of spending their their um salaries on books and you know they might be classic books and you know um 
Emily Dickinson, whatever it is, or it might be just, you know, airport mysteries. Um, and, and there's something kind of really, really nice about that. To, to your point about what, or how much did you push, um, the, the, and kind of, this is a debate that happens in the people who are, um, you know, thinking about this every day, but like there are new translations basically once a decade, um, depending on the book. Um, so Emily Wilson just released a translation of the Odyssey and it's uh, kind of a, a much lauded translation, both because it's good, but it's also the first that, that we know of at least uh, the first time a woman has translated the Odyssey. And this is kind of uh, important in and of itself um, from kind of a representation standpoint, but right. also important because, you know, translations, you, you think, okay, it's just the original work and then it gets translated and that like, whatever. But th there's a lot of um, editorializing, I think that goes into translations. And so the example with Emily Wilson and the Odyssey is, and I have, I, you know, one or two other uh, copies somewhere here, but um, you know, in in one version, it'll be like, and Odysseus went to his servant and said, you know, blah blah blah, and it's like, oh, that wasn't like a servant in like the P.G. Woodhouse Jeeves sense, like that was a slave. Um, right. And Emily Wilson kind of kind of canonically uses the word slave for for those people, um, and you know, he, he you know, this person didn't take so-and-so is their mistress or their buddy or something. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, right. they were taken as a slave. Um, and, and so there's a lot of kind of new lenses you can bring on, uh, you, you can kind of bring on to these books and kind of very much not static. Um, Don Quixote, my translation was Edith Grossman, which I think came out in like early 2000. And so, you know, you, you can go back to, to 1960 or, or even earlier, when there were very staid translations, very difficult to get through. Gotcha. Um, but, you know, Don Quixote for, you know, because of Grossman's translation ethos or whatever you want to call it, um, is this eminently readable, um, very, you know, kind of vernacular, um, uh, very easy to read book. Uh, and even actually this, this version of Don Quixote has a translation section at the back where like the first two paragraphs or something, they, they compare like 17 different um, different translation, you can kind of see what I'm talking about where it's like, oh, it's like, it's not for a given that this thing is actually easy to read. It's like, this was a conscious decision. And so what I say to people is like, classics shouldn't be difficult to read by definition. You know, they're, it's more, it's harder than Harry Potter. Um, but, but, you know, it's not, you know, the, the striving isn't necessarily the point. Um, gotcha. You know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure I buy this, you know, you should just throw it out the minute it gets hard because I think there's like a lot of reward to doing a hard thing and to struggling with something and to, to, you know, sitting with it for a while. But, uh, you know, I certainly don't subscribe to this idea that, uh, the, the slog is, is something like the price of admission. Right. That I think that's well put. And it, it does make me wonder, you know, if you're reading something like Shakespeare and so, you know, Shakespeare it's in English, but you know, there's a lot of words that are not used in the same context. You know, what do you think about that? You know, it, it, when you get through those, it, is it worth trying to find like, what, what is it? No fear of Shakespeare or something. Cause we're just going to the plays. What do you feel about that? Oh yeah. I mean, my version of Shakespeare, I don't have it to hand, but my versions of Shakespeare are like the ones that middle schools and high schools use where I'm like, I want to appreciate the language and the, the style and, um, 
you know that that when especially when it's written in a different language and Shakespeare is like basically um, a different language at, the, at this stage there's a lot of like oh in the original Italian this is really funny because it actually you know does this or whatever um, so you kind of want the original uh, Shakespeare there because it's very well done but I also want to and, and Shakespeare is a good example because fundamentally these are are plays right these are stories right um, and uh, you know Shakespeare is trying to be clever and trying to be funny but it's not some kind of like rhetorical flourish where he's trying to convince you of something um, yeah. and and so I'm very much there where it's like this means that they want to have sex it's right. like okay, you know you're, you're you totally <laughs> want that sort of like footnote or side note or whatever where you know you're not struggling with it so much as you're whatever allows you access into the story and, and to understand these characters and uh, to understand these plots. And, and you know, the, the Shakespeare that I did in high school was a ton on the list for year two, but the Shakespeare that I did in high school was, was Macbeth. And Macbeth, you know, dripping in irony um, and, and kind of you watch Macbeth's world sort of unravel because he's like, you know, oh, no man of woman born will ever harm me. And he's like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, invincible. Um, and you watch that kind of, fall apart and you watch you him realizing that it's falling apart um and that's what you're reading shakespeare for you know it's not the uh or i guess secondarily i think it's the flowery language but but fundamentally he's a storyteller gotcha i I, yeah i i think that's that's a really good way to approach it and then think about that that problem uh tommy You've been interested in books since you were a little kid, isn't that correct? Uh, maybe I've gotten this from your Twitter, or your blog, but it, yeah, it's been well, a lifelong pursuit, right? Yeah. So, so we grew up in the middle of nowhere in Ireland. <laughs> um, there were two of us, or three of us, um, my older brothers and I, um, and we all sort of um, d- developed our own interests. You know, the, the the kind of point that I make is that there was no, you know, going out to the street to play with your friends because there was no friends nearby. Uh, they were all, you know. Uh, 10, 15 miles down the road, and there were no streets to speak of. Um, and so we all got a chance to uh, explore our own interests. And, you know, our parents were great because they were very much the sort of people who would push kind of from behind, um, oh, kind of support, su- support our interests. Yeah, I remember uh, Patrick wanted to learn ancient Greek. And so my parents found him a tutor on Saturday mornings at a local. Dominican or Franciscan Abbey, but like literally, oh, wow. that's great. It's like studied ancient Greek with like a monk at an Abbey. Um, um, and so, you know, it wasn't them being like, oh, you have to study a foreign language. It's like Patrick right. expressed this interest and they like found a way of supporting it. Um, and so, you know, kind of uh, Patrick and John went into computers um, and I kind of followed them in a little bit later, but I fundamentally was like, oh my God, I can like sit in this chair with this book and it's great. And so, uh, yeah, I, I got into kind of reading and writing fairly quickly. And the internet then became this thing that we could use to kind of press our noses up against the the, the rest of the world. Um, right. I was too young for kind of Amazon and, and this idea that, you know, the Kindle where you could, uh, uh, you know, press a button and be reading something five, five minutes later, but uh, probably for the best in terms of like my credit card bill or something like right. that. It's exactly. like, probably thanks me for that. That's good. Do you, do you think there's something cultural there about, you know, in the United States, there's like intense pressure to, you know, get your kids into, you know, the good high school. Now it's even like get your kids in the good kindergarten in New York City. And it's just like intense competition and people just, they don't 
get a chance to explore what they're interested in, right? Like, you know, go read the great books, et cetera. Like whatever that looks like, go learn Latin if you want to. Do you think, do you feel that was a cultural difference or is that just like a special case with, you know, your parents had kind of a good insight there? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. My, well, uh, there's a kindergarten near where I am um, that bills itself as a college prep kindergarten. <laughs> Wait. And I'm kind of like... <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, not a, that was entirely that was entirely my reaction. Um, oh, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, and so oh, no. uh, th- there's that in America. Um, in that, you know, I, I haven't thought pulled of the, the kindergartens or, or preschools in in Ireland, but I, I don't think there's that same uh, idea. Um, but but two, you know, Patrick has talked about this, this a good bit. He kind of very famously has advice for people ten to twenty. Um, yeah. So so kind of the people you're talking about, um, uh, where where he he makes the point that there is going to be strong forces kind of pushing you towards this traditional route of you know padding your your high school resume with uh, extracurriculars and stuff like this. Yeah. Um, and so we were kind of lucky because we were away from it, um, you know, kind of insulated from this American, um, you know, high school to college pipeline um, by virtue of being in Ireland. Um, but, I, but I think that, you know, our parents were good at it. And I think this is an Irish thing more generally where there's just kind of a free range parenting aspect to it where, you know, as long as you're home by, by dark, um, you know great. what I mean? You, you can kind of do as you wish. And I think there's a lot more, uh, you know, everything at its time in the sense of, yeah, you know, you should probably worry about college, but probably not till the last like two years of, you know what I mean? Like you should probably start thinking about it then. Um, but yeah, there isn't the same sense that kind of the, the, the things you're doing as a 10 or a 12 year old are going to then, you know, downstream impact you. Um, and so, you know, there's an extent to which Patrick, especially, you know, I remember growing up watching him, he went deep on at various stages, you know, ancient Greek, physics, literature, uh, math, uh, and kind of various branches of science, as well as computer programming, which I guess is arguably what he went into. Um, So, you know, there's an extent to which because the external forces aren't there, naturally you do have a little bit more flexibility or freedom. That's great. Well, and we've had, um, do you know who Don Braben is? My chances is kind of out of left field. No, 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 no. He wrote a book, uh, Stripe Press just recently released it. It's called Scientific Freedom. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so he's I, great. So we had him on the show. He's a real, He's 85. He's still sharp as a tack. Yep. Uh, he's a physicist. He ran a venture research program at BP. And his whole thought was, you know, the big problem is that we've gotten too much um, oversight and bureaucracy for scientists now. Used to be you could get this small amount of money, you know, 30K a year, go out, you know, explore whatever you wanted to, right? And, you know... Max Planck spent 20 years on thermodynamics and you could probably never do that again. Right. You know, it's just his weird idea and he just kept iterating on it. Um, and I, I do wonder if we lose something when we just, you know, force kids to, you know, go down this one path and you don't have this kind of freedom to pursue what interests you. Yeah. And I mean, well, this gets back to, and I'm, I'm saying this sort of as, as someone who made it through to the other side of this, but you know, if we say that 75% of people aren't, uh, studying or aren't working in the thing that they studied in college as an undergrad like well you know what are why are we worried about uh you know what people study in college and you know it's probably 
good to not be completely unmoored and right. you know what I mean just like <laughs> exactly. w w wasting time but it, yeah th there's probably some aspect to there are some things that matter a lot and then there are some things that matter much less where you know uh if you know what you want to do it is kind of quote-unquote fine not to go to college but if you can kind of afford to do it and you don't know what you want to do with your life, there are worse ways of spending four years than going right. and kind of exploring a bunch of different things like, oh, is it this, is it this, is this? And this is exactly what I did where I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think I changed my major like eight times in my freshman year. Um, so, you know, there's an extent to which that asks, you know, 16 year olds to have a lot of foresight where it's like, mm, do I know what I want to do with my life? Right. Um, uh, but but I think it's kind of becoming increasingly less important, you know, that 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 this decision you make when you're when you're 16 or 17, um, you know, it kind of sets you on this path. Right. What, was there anything about journalism that particularly attracted you? Was there you know something you read? I don't know. Was there anything that grabbed you? Yeah. So I wanted to be a journalist after. So. I don't remember. It came out, I think, in 2005 or something. But there was a book, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Oh, yes. Um, I get which is a movie with Daniel Craig in, in 2010 or whatever. But uh, the the so so The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is this kind of murder mystery thriller uh, where a journalist and a ha computer hacker solve a mystery. Um, and so, of course, it's like made for Tommy, where it's like, oh, I like computers. I like journalists. This is great. Like, yeah, it's good. this is great. This is like content written specifically for me. Um, I'm also a huge like thriller or mystery fan. Um, awesome. But uh, so, so the girl with the dragon tattoo, but it was written by uh, a guy called Stieg Larsson, who's the Swedish journalist. And it's almost one of those times where like the truth is better than the story where so Stieg Larsson was a writer for a magazine um, that, that kind of he, he was the basis of the, the journalist in the novel. But so he wrote for this magazine that covered the alt-right and, you know, oh, wow. the, the kind of alt-right movement in America came kind of 10 to 15 years after it came in Europe um, in, in the right of this kind of, you know, Europe had these sort of nationalist uh, anti-immigrant parties and, and uh, politicians kind of a little bit before America did, excuse me. And so um, he basically covered neo-Nazis in Sweden. He covered oh, wow. all, of, all of these sorts of things. And uh, it, was, it was kind of very inspiring um, in the sense that he took this part of culture, this part of society or whatever, and says, you probably don't care about this thing, but here's why you should care about this thing. Um, and, and that was, to me, kind of a very powerful uh, view of journalism. Uh, and so when I was in high school and, and then later in college, I started thinking, kind of, what, what is that for me? It's like, I don't know anything about politics. Um, but what I did know was computers and what I was seeing. And, you know, so I was in my senior year of high school, uh, literally graduating high school, the month of the Edward Snowden disclosures. And I remember oh, I was wow. doing like my terminal exams uh, and kind of going home and being like, oh my God, what's happening here? Um, and if you remember, it's like, there's a whole saga because it's like, yeah, well, these, these, these news things came out and then it's like, oh, it's this guy in, you know, and he's escaped to, to Hong Kong and you know, he's in Hong Kong. Is he going to be arrested there? And it's like, oh, he's disappeared. Oh, now he's in Russia. Uh, you know, it literally was like a soap opera that you could shoot yeah. into. 
But, um, and, and I started putting together almost like a worldview um, that I ended up kind of writing about. And, and I still have like the first draft of a book on my hard drive that I have I've yet to like find a publisher for. But basically, you know, kind of what is this thing of like, here is the thing that you don't really know all that much about, but you should care about yeah. it because it's going to be important. Right. Um, and I, I kind of formulated my theory of this, which is, um, and, and again, it was informed by the journalism that I did in college, um, which was, it's very difficult to keep information secure. Um, and this is true on the interpersonal level where you have uh, revenge porn, which is kind of uh, the non-consensual sharing of intimate texts and photos, uh, usually of like an ex or something like that. So, so kind of, and you, there's so many stories and I, I talked to some people in college about this, but there's kind of so many stories online of people who, you know, their first Google result is, like, yeah, is, 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 is something like this. Um, and, you know, it scuppers job interviews. It right. know, makes it very hard to do anything um, because, of course, everything is, you know, online these days. Right. So interpersonally, very difficult to keep things secure. Uh, on a company level, very difficult to keep things secure. You see this in terms of, like, Equifax getting hacked. Um, Ashley right. Madison, which was this dating app for people who wanted to have affairs, had their membership oh, no. <laughs> um, list leaked. Uh, <laughs> Not and good it's for like, their business, I'm sure. Not good for the business, but also like kind of literally and the, the worst thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, I, I, and you know, kind of we 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 kind of chuckle about it, but like people committed suicide oh, over this list uh, yeah. leaking. Um, and and then you know, so it's true on personal level, it's true on company levels, and it's true on governmental levels in the sense of Snowden leaks, WikiLeaks. Um, you know, uh, on the company level, there was this story. You know, Sony got hacked by North Korea because Sony was releasing this. Uh, movie that was critical of the North Korean government and you know the movie was almost canceled whatever it did you know get digitally released um, and you know North Korea hacked Sony and released a bunch of emails that showed that uh, they were basically paying male stars or male executives uh, more than they were paying female which uh. of course in the context of the discussion on gender equality was like very damaging for Sony um, and so you know, it's it's so on every level, it is very difficult to keep information secure. Uh, and, you know, either there's kind of one or two outcomes here, one of two, which is the first outcome is like, hey, from like 1995 to, you know, 2030, we didn't like we had a lot of information like and known social security was private and like all these texts and images were coming out. It was a wild west of a time, but, you know, yeah. we managed to batten down the hatches. Um, right. And the, you know, the second option is just we never managed to figure this out. And just the, the information that's online is susceptible to leak, um, which is its own weird little paradigm shift um, in the sense of like, what do we do when, you know, our social security numbers are bought and sold on the, on the dark web? Right. Um, and what does it mean for like the fact that your social is used as identity verification by like literally everyone? Um, and, and so a long way of answering your question, kind of the thing that I got really interested in was oh God, computers are going to like upend everything. And, right. you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. The counter argument to all of that is like, how has your life meaningfully changed since the Equifax, since the Equifax leak? Right. You know, it's like, it really I, hasn't changed, right? Like, yeah, at least like, for I me, right? Yeah, I, I actually can't point to anything that happened. But, you know, was there any large scale change after the Snowden leaks? There was a little bit, you know, public opinion really did seem to shift. Um, but, you know, has the NSA's powers really been, you know, meaningfully reined in? It doesn't doesn't really seem so. Right. That do you think people 
do you think it's just gotten to be so much that, you know, so much information was released about us and it, we're just kind of like attenuated to it. Do you think that's what, ha- what has generally happened will continue to happen? Or do you think there's a moment where like, Oh God, this is like a little too much. Yeah. I mean, the, the scale of it means that we haven't, um, you know, it's very easy to not feel the personal effects for like that person with the Ashley Madison leak probably really feels it. Right. Um, but but if you're not, and you know, there's this classic line that privacy activists use where, you know, if you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to worry about, like just fundamentally isn't true because there's always something. Um, yeah. And, and so maybe it's a question of just there's so much information leaking online that we haven't found the thing that like pushes everyone's button. Um, the, the, the one that I come back to is, you know, we've had Photoshop for like 25 years and we still sort of trust images. That's pretty uh, interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's like we still mostly trust images. Yeah. And everyone's kind of worried about this from the perspective of like deep fakes. So like yeah. fake videos. And there's this right. famous one of Obama talking and it turns out that it's it's a you know comedian voicing him or something with, with yeah. computer generated imagery. And I find it kind of hard to worry about that just because it's like, you know, again, like we mostly still trust images even though Photoshop is real good these days. Um, and so, I sort of feel it's like an emperor has no clothes moment where it's just like, you know, there, there's there's going to be something on everyone. Um, uh, I, I was talking to someone, interviewing them for the book, and they were making the parallel um, with drug use and American presidents, where mm. it's like, you know, uh, in previous years, it would have been on conscionable for a president to admit to drug use and then by the time we got to obama he was like yeah i smoked pot in college everyone smoked pot in college um and so now it's just not a not a worry and so it's like well in future you know when when millennials or or, or gen z are like old enough to be running for president it's going to be like hey is this your intimate photo that got leaked online they're like yeah everyone's photos got leaked online you know (laughs) photos aren't private anymore yeah um and and so maybe, maybe that's the end game where it just kind of doesn't matter Right. Where if you have something on everyone, you have nothing on anyone, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in particular for the photos side of things, I think people are like public opinion is so against the people who are like leaking the intimate photos that it's you almost get um, you almost get some almost like a free pass where it's like, yeah, that was a really shitty thing to do. Sorry, I shouldn't swear. But uh, (laughs) it's like that's a really bad thing to do. Um, and, And so I think it's becoming less it, it's being seen as the invasion of trust um yeah. th- th- that it is more than it's like oh well, why are you taking those sorts of fiction it's like, like right. people are humans exactly uh you know i've thought about this this issue in the context of a uh, neuralink and when we're, you know at the point where we're controlling computers with our thoughts and then your know, thoughts start getting public do you think that's crossing a rubicon or it's again it's another thing where it's just like well you know everybody's gonna have it out there and you know on the margin, maybe there's some bad things that happens, but it's not it's not something really to worry about. Yeah, I mean the 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 thing with technology um, that I'm seeing is is that we kind of we go and then we pull back. Um, so so cell phones are a great example of this, where you know it's okay. Well, when it's like literally a phone, uh, that's great and it's very convenient to carry around with us, and you know it's a it's a great new technology. And then it's like, well, we've got these apps and like, well, you know, everyone's spending way too much time on them. And now there's this kind of cottage industry of what's called a digital detox, 
where it's like, oh yeah, we're going to, <laughs> uh, you know, take a, be away from our phones and you know, Apple introduces yeah. screen time where it's like highlighting the apps you spend the most time and you can shut off access to them after a certain amount of time, um, and, and and you know, it's almost like this, you know, Walden Thoreau moment of like we invent all this new technology and then it's like, oh, let's pull back. And of course, uh, you know, for me being Jewish, it's like, yeah, we invented the Sabbath. Like we've been doing this for thousands of years. <laughs> oh wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, and I, I see tweets sometimes that are like, what if we all just agreed not to use social media on Wednesday? And I'm like, <laughs> nothing new under the sun. You've invented this. <laughs> Congrats, you've invented Congrats, the Sabbath. Um, yeah, but but so I wonder if uh, we're going to see something similar to that, where uh, you know, okay, we invent this amazing new thing, but you know, people want to to kind of pull back from it a little bit. Um, and you know, the, the there's so many advances uh, in technology that we, you know, it's it's hard to predict what we're going to use them for. Um, and you know, AI is looking for cancer cells and all, all of these kind of medical um, uh, implementations. For I'm kind of generally very excited for new technology because I think there's a whole host of just like really boring things that you wouldn't think of, um, such as you know AI image recognition being used on cancer cells and like training it on, on all the models of the MRIs or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I find it hard to, to really drum myself up to be super worried about, uh, you know, points of no return or whatever. People, right. people who I used to, you know, live with or, or be friends with in, in San Francisco um, were always talking about this like singularity moment, but so far have, I've yet to really kind of get myself worked up over it. Definitely. I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, Tommy, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, b- before I let you go, this is a funny question, but you mentioned you really like mysteries and thrillers and we're, we're going to include a link to the great books and everything, but I'd sure. love to get, you know, do you have any recommendations? Oh man. Uh, so the, the OG mystery. Um, so, so there's a, 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 um, a, kind of trope in mysteries called a locked door mystery where it's like yeah. oh you've got these group of people and one of them was murdered but the door was locked um ah. <laughs> uh, yeah exactly um and so agatha christie has a has two of these one of which is um murder on the orient express which without giving it away is about a murder on a train <laughs> um and, and it's kind of a locked door mystery because the train gets stuck and like no one was able to get in or you know what i mean um and so Murder in the Orient Express, which is a movie a couple of years ago with um, Kenneth Branagh, is, is actually an amazing book. Um, it's it's really good. And the second, Agatha Christie, is And Then There Were None, um, uh, which is literally they're on an island and and then there were none. Um, <laughs> nice. <laughs> very descriptive titles. Um, recent ones, I thought Gone Girl was absolutely phenomenal. And I remember reading Gone Girl. Um, I was at a, I was at a, like a, uh, it was at CCC, which is this um, kind of computer club conference, Congress gotcha. thing uh, in Germany in 2015. And I remember I was like at this conference, I had been looking forward to this conference for like months and months and months. Awesome. And I literally kind of went to Germany for it and started going on the plane Whoops. there. <laughs> and like literally the entire conference just passed me by. Um, yeah, because I was like uh, just like in a corner reading Gone Girl to try and get it finished. Um, so, so yeah, the, the, those are three really good recommendations. But I mean, in, ter- in terms of recommendations, so my my really nerdy achievement is uh, that I've kept a list of every book I have read. Oh, excellent! For the last eleven years, yeah, going oh, that's twelve years. Awesome. Um, and so anything anything on that list that's bolded, um, I think is great. So if you're just like uh, search for mysteries there. 
go check it out. Awesome. And so where can people find the, the um, great books program you've put together? Yeah. So TommyCollison.com. Yeah. TommyCollison.com slash great books is, is the kind of canonical list. Uh, and there people often ask me for translations or, or editions or whatever. And so there's, yeah. it's actually like ISBNs listed for, for if you want kind of editions that I enjoyed or whatever. Um, TommyCollison.com slash books is, is that 11 year book list that I mentioned. And then, yeah, I, I wanted to, to just think about these ideas, you know, not even from a career perspective of like, oh, look at this work I've done. Um, but yeah. literally just because like I, the most recent post is something like, I have thoughts about Dante's Inferno. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to put them up on a blog and see, see what people think. Um, and I've gotten some good emails about it where it's like, I think you're wrong because of like this. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, that is literaryforge.blog. So literaryforge.blog. Um, so yeah, anywhere there. That's awesome. Well, thanks so much, Tommy. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks so much for having me. Well, that's our show for today. I'm Will Jarvis. And I'm Will's dad. Join us next week for more narratives. 